All right, let's pray, and then we'll dive in. Father, thank you for this time tonight. Thank you that we can set aside an hour of our lives in the middle of the week to calm our hearts, um, to take time together as your church, as people who are wholly devoted to you, to hear what you have to say, to work together, to understand what life is supposed to be like um, between the already and the not yet, as we talked about last week. I pray that you would help us. Um, help me as I teach. Help me to be undistracted. Help me in the physical, uh, uh, the cold that I'm struggling with, that um, that would not be a distraction unnecessarily so to those who listen. I pray that you would help us all to be engaged, to be thinking well and to be thinking clearly, um, to be thinking biblically about this topic of growing in our relationship with you through the word. And I pray that we would all try to contribute to help each other grow in this area. In your name we pray. Amen. Mm -hmm. All right. Um, The obvious, there's two obvious things tonight about me. One, I have a cold. So I'm going to hack, hopefully not much, but I'm going to hack. I'm going to sound nasally, even worse than I probably already do. And then the second thing is that you'll see I have a fake tattoo. As I wave my arms, I don't want any of you... I'm a, I'm a pretty diehard Michigan fan, but I am not that big of a Michigan fan that I would tattoo a big block M on my wrist. Um, I didn't want to... Not that I have a problem with tattoos, but I didn't want you to think that... You know, I got a really bad Michigan tattoo job over the week. Um, this is a, I think a girl, I don't know, maybe we're starting this, I'm not sure, but every week it seems like my kids have a new Michigan tattoo for Saturday, so I joined in the fun this week, and that's what you see. Mine just hasn't fully washed off like Mallory's has. Caden's is still on, like, it was really permanent, so... And Hattie's is still on, too, I think. So, All right, last week, if you weren't here, <clears throat> I would highly recommend that you try to go back on the CBC website and listen to what we had to talk about, in particular the first couple minutes, where we tried to review the first block of four lessons that we discussed. Um, we discussed that in that first four, that the first block of four about the gospel. What is the gospel? We talked about conversion. What is essential to understand to be a Christian? Talked about baptism, and then we transitioned last week into the next section, which is our growth, the beginning of our sancti- the process of sanctification in our lives, and we talked about the role of the Holy Spirit in that process. And so you'll see in the review section of your notes that last week we tried to discover who the Holy Spirit is, or was, well, is, because he is presently the Holy Spirit, and what his role is in our lives. And we learned that the Holy Spirit is God, right? He's the third person of the Trinity. He is living in the heart of every believer from the moment of their conversion, You can't escape that reality when you look at Romans 8. There is no such such thing in the New Testament as uh, a de-spirited believer, right? Or uh, a believer with no Holy Spirit residing in his heart, right? That's not fathomed in the pages of the New Testament. And he is at work in the lives of everyone that he indwells, making them more and more like Jesus Christ. And we call that work progressive sanctification, but there's one thing that we have to remember in progressive sanctification, that process of God making us holy or more and more like Jesus, is that it is a cooperative work, right? We're not passive participants, just sitting with our our feet up in the lazy boy, waiting for the Holy Spirit to zap us into holiness. It is a cooperative work where we're active and he's active. And so we talked about three things about our sanctification last week. Two were what he contributes to our sanctification. The first, he breaks the reign of sin over us by crucifying our old identity. He breaks that that bondage and slavery to sin. 
We looked at Romans 6. And then the second thing that the Holy Spirit does to contribute to our progressive sanctification is that he empowers us to obey the word. And he does that by giving us a new nature. Um, big theological term. It's a good one, though, so I hope you know it. Regeneration. Does anyone know what regeneration is? Or how would you define regeneration? To make new, to give new life. Okay, to give new life. Maybe if I could add a little bit of meat to those bones, but those are good bones. To impart spiritual life to the spiritually dead. To impart spiritual life to the spiritually dead. That's regeneration. And that is what happened. Or what happens at regeneration is we have a new nature. We have new life. We now have an ability to please God that we once did not have before. So that's how the the spirit works, contributing to our spiritual growth. But then I noted, number three, that we have a part to play, right? And our part to play is that we must obey the word. We must obey the word. With this new ability and with this, this freedom, we must obey. We must obey the word. And that's going to be really, really hard sometimes because our flesh is strong. Even though that power and reign has been broken, our flesh is strong. So this week, lesson six, here's the goal. To discover why the Bible is worth studying. Why the Bible is worth studying and tools to help us study it. Our goal this evening in our discussion is to discover why the Bible is worth studying and some tools to help us in studying it. This week, I believe the title, if I can remember correctly, is Intimacy with God, the Discipline of Devotion. And it's the discipline of being in the Word. So if I were to ask you this question, think about it and then we can can talk about it. If a brand new believer asked you, Hey, Jim, what are two or three things that I should do now that I'm a Christian? What would you say? Hey, Dana, what are two or three things that I need to know, that I need to do now? I mean, I'm a Christian. I'm a believer. So, what do we do? What would you say? Read the Bible. No, same thing. Read the Bible? Find a church. Find a church? What kind of church? Um, Hopefully a a Bible-based believing church. Okay. That you're comfortable in. Okay. Pray. Okay. Read your Bible. Pray. Find the church. Anything else? Let's. I mean, that's two or three. So let's just keep it there. Two or three. Read your Bible. Pray every day. Find the church, and you'll grow, grow, grow. I had to add the third part, right? <laughs> okay, but why would you tell him? I'm going to go to you because you guys said. Why would you tell him that you need to read the Bible? Because you'll grow. Okay. That's how you're going to learn. Learn what? Learn about God speaking to us. I'm putting that on the phone. Sorry, Daddy. I'll come to you in a second. That's how you're going to build a relationship with God and get to know Him. Okay, so you get to know God. You grow. Grow, grow. <laughs> it's a user man. Okay, it's a user manual. Everything you need to know is in there. Okay. So does it tell me, just out of curiosity, does it tell me what uh, cellular respiration is? You need to know this? (laughs) (laughs) Maybe. Depends on what my career is. It's a user manual for a believer. It it, it tells them what they need to know. For to be more Christ-like, life and to grow for as a believer, for life and godliness, for salvation and sanctification, for life and for godliness. You're right. I'm just giving you a hard time. I know. Sorry. Okay. I'm used to it. Well, maybe here's a couple of examples. We need to know the Bible, or Phantom Person X needs to know the Bible. New Christian guy. 
He needs to study it because he needs to be able to share his faith, right? I mean, that would be a good reason. 1 Peter 3.15 says, But in your hearts revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks to give the reason for the hope that you have. <coughs> so we got to be ready. Brand new believer. He needs to be ready. What about before the brand new believer became a brand new believer? Didn't he need the word? I mean, Romans chapter 10, verse 17 says that faith comes from hearing, hearing through the word of Christ. So you can't be saved by looking up at the stars. You need special revelation. You need the word of God. That doesn't mean that your eyes had to see the pages of scripture for the 1611 King James Version. No. But it had it has to grapple with the truth claims of, of Scripture, even if it's communicated by a messenger. What about for spiritual protection? My mind thinks of Paul in Ephesians, Ephesians 6, where he says, put on the whole armor of God. At the very end of the whole armor of God, he talks about it, take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which are the Word of God, or which is the Word of God. And in between there is smashed all this this spiritual uh, battle armor because our fight is not against flesh and blood, but against these spiritual forces, right? So, So we need spiritual protection. But I'd like to suggest one, well, I guess kind of one reason teased out into three reasons based on 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. So if you have your Bibles, look at 2 Timothy 3, verses 16 and 17. Or if you look in your book, I don't know the page number off the top of my head, but I believe this text is one that is in your book. And it's kind of sandwiched. They give you more of the context than what we're going to discuss. But if I were to ask you the question... For the purposes that we have tonight, in light of the fact that we're trying to find out, trying to discover the role of the Word in our lives, that's part of it, why should we study the Bible? Well, I'd like to give you three and a half slash four reasons. It depends on how we go here. But let's look at 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. I'll read it here. All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful... For teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. Verse 17. So that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Number one. Why should we study the Bible? Because of its unique author. Because of its unique author. Look at the first part of that verse. All scripture is what? God breathed. God breathed. You want a paraphrased version of that? God wrote it. God wrote the Bible. What you hold in your hands is not a random collection of stories. As cool as some of those are. Like a fat guy getting stabbed in the gut with a sword. Or a guy falling asleep during somebody's message and falling out the window. Those are pretty cool stories. At least they're interesting. They're very Jim Pantelli-esque, right? I was kind of thinking of it until you've taught high school. That's true, too. But they're not just cool stories, right? They're not just this smatter, smattering of things that God thought, you know, it might be... Good for you to know this, or that. Or maybe this will entertain you. Step back from how indoctrinated you and I have become over the life of of being Christians, and think about this for a second. God, the creator of the universe, speaks. The God who opened his mouth and said, let there be. 
has opened his mouth and has authored a book about himself. Your creator. Your savior. He's authored a book about himself. God wrote a book. It is absolutely unique because it is written by God himself. But not only is this book unique because he wrote it, the Bible reflects God's character. I mean, if you think about all the books that you've ever read, if I could, well, I guess you can't read blindfolded, but if you could read without knowing the author, you could, pro- but yet you've read a number of that author's books, you could catch the feel, right? Because there's certain characteristics. There's certain, just, that guy's DNA is just right there. I mean, when we read Paul, we can read Paul, even if we don't know it's Paul, it sounds like Paul. And when we read Peter, we know that sounds like Peter. Do you get what I'm saying? I'm not going to go on, I don't read a lot out in the, like, like I don't read Twilight or Harry Potter or whatever all that stuff is, so I can't really help you, or Left Behind like my dad's read. So I can't tell you all that kind of stuff. But I know on like the theology stuff or the books that I like to read, I can tell and pick up the characteristics of the author. But the Bible has the characteristics of its author, but what's unique is not just the, is not the style so much as it's the character. God is holy. God does not lie. Right? And if that's the case, doesn't it not logically follow that the word that he has authored is also trustworthy? Without error? See, because of its unique author, we can trust this this book. Okay, so here's like the the one I wasn't going to say because it's not my notes, but I'll add it because I think it's worthwhile and it's not very parallel to everything else, but it doesn't really matter because I think it's a good uh, a good worthy point to discuss. So number one, one reason is because of its unique author. That's why we should study it. But number two, because of our unique relationship to its author. I don't think that we can separate out a motivation to study God's word from our relationship to him. If you look back in the verse, verse 17 starts, so that, so there's a purpose statement, the servant of God. An unbeliever is not a servant of God in the same sense that a believer is, right? A servant of God. We have a relationship with the author of this word. Without that relationship, we we find ourselves described like 1 Corinthians 2, where it talks about we just esteem this as a bunch of rubbish and foolishness. But when we have the Spirit of God, because we are regenerated, we look at this and we see wisdom and life and truth. You see, we have a unique relationship, which I think is a big motivation as to why we want to study, because we have a relationship with this God, this Creator who has spoken. And we can get to know Him by reading His Word. There's a relationship there that must fuel our study. So number one, it's because of our uh, the unique author. Number two, because of our unique relationship to that author. Number three is because of its unique process. The process gets us to the result, which we'll see in a second, but it has a unique process in which it accomplishes its result. Or if you want to think of it, it's a patented thing. Only God can do this. All scripture is God-breathed, and it is useful for what? Teaching, rebuke, correction, training, or instruction in righteousness. That's the unique patented process of God through his word by which he's going to accomplish his result. Teaching, it's how you think. It's what you believe. 
It's doctrine. I've heard people say that they're they well, I don't I don't like theology. The problem with that is that every Christian is a theologian. To a greater or lesser degree, but every every Christian is a theologian because every Christian formulates what they believe about God and his word. Every one of us. And we can't escape this fact that I'm going to say in two parallel ways. One, what you believe will determine how you behave. What you believe always determines how you behave. And if I could say that in a slightly uh, flipped way, your behavior will demonstrate what you believe. So first, what you believe will determine how you behave. What you believe determines how you behave. And then if I flip that a little bit, your behavior will demonstrate what you believe. You see, we need to study the Bible because we need to think God's thoughts after him. Not, we think our thoughts and then try to take, you know, just grab this one and grab that one and grab these selective passages and dump them into our theological system and see, oh, see, God God kind of supports what I'm saying. And we add credibility to the, the our theology, the Troyology or the Gymology or whatever whatever ology we create. No, it needs to be Godology, theology, right from his book. Because if we veer off, we get bad beliefs which result in bad behavior. You see it's important, right? You see the importance of studying God's word. Because we need to think right and we need to know and believe what's right. <coughs> Number two, rebuking. So the word of God is useful for rebuking, to show you and I our sin. Hebrews 4, verse 12 says that the word of God is active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even the, between the joints and marrow, something like that. And it judges the thoughts and intentions or attitudes of the heart. This is a powerful thing. It has the ability to cut you to the core and to show you that you're a sinner. Number three, it corrects. Thank God it doesn't just put you in your place, but it helps you get back on the right course. It course corrects you, like what your map app doesn't do sometimes. But you know, sometimes it does. It does work. Because when you veer off course, you see that little pinwheel of death for a second and then it then it it says rerouting right and it gets you back to the right course that's the correction and then finally the training in righteousness it tells you how to live if i could summarize these four and smash it into three things i'd put it this way like what we see in ephesians 4 colossians 3 this idea of renewing the mind that's teaching right it's it's getting your mind and your heart Thinking and believing the right stuff. The rebuking and the correction is putting off the old junk, the old baggage, and that's training in righteousness is putting on the good stuff. So, we've seen three reasons so far from 2 Timothy 3.16 why we should study the Bible because of its unique author, our unique relationship to the author, three of God's unique process and four because of its unique result. Look at the end of this section, verse 17. So that. So when you read so that, typically it's it's telling you this is what happens because of what just came before. So that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. If I could summarize that down, spiritual maturity. The unique result of the word of God in the life of the believer is spiritual maturity. So why should you and I want to study this book? Because God's end game for you is spiritual maturity. And the way he intends on accomplishing that objective in you is through this book. So a Christian life 
separated from God's word is really not a Christian life. Right? I'm not trying to be I'm not trying to be like paint these really stark realities or I'm not, I'm not trying to make anyone doubt their salvation, but if we think about it just like from what he's saying here, a Christian life completely devoid of God's word in that believer's life isn't a very Christian life, right? Spiritual maturity. If you think that maybe this verse needs a little bit more support, it doesn't. But if you think it does, let me give you two support uh, verses to support it. First Peter 2.2. 2. You all probably know this, even though you don't know the reference. But like newborn babies crave pure spiritual milk. So that. We got that so that thing again. The result? Buy it. You may grow up in your salvation. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 14. I like this one. But solid food is for the mature, who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. So here, the author of Hebrews says, here's my description of the mature. By constant use, they have trained themselves to know good and evil. Whereas Ephesians says, to find out what is pleasing to the Lord. That's what a mature believer does. They find out what is pleasing to God. They know what is good. They know what is bad because they've trained themselves. So, why should we study the Bible? At least in this passage, we got lots of reasons. But just from this passage, because we can't discuss everything. As much as we'd love to, I'm sure. You'd love to hear me talk a lot more. Unique author, our unique relationship to that author, God's unique process of using the word through teaching, rebuke, correction, instruction, righteousness, and then forth by its unique result, that we will be spiritually mature. So, how do we study the Bible? So, everyone in here is older than me, I think. Is anyone younger than 36? I just turned 36 last Friday. All right, there we go. All right, so you and I can listen to everybody else. You're not? No. Oh, all right. All right, I am the youngest, which is scary, because I'm standing here teaching. So I guess I'm specifically looking at everybody but myself, and I'm asking this question. If you could help me then, as elder saints... What have you learned in your walk with God today that might help younger people like me know how best to study God's Word? Like, what are some tricks of the trade, so to speak? Tools in your belt that have helped you over the course of your life, your spiritual life, study God's Word. To know it, and to know the God behind it. To cultivate that relationship. I would say memorize scripture is fabulous for me and even for kids too because that comes to your mind when you have a difficulty or a trial so that's one of the ways okay. immerse yourself in a passage or a book rather than jumping around piecemeal okay. pray before you read it Commentaries or other books that kind of explain stuff that I don't quite understand. Are there any particular uh, commentary series that you um, like? Bible knowledge. Okay. okay. So, Dana? I was raised with the King James, which I've often sat there and read a passage and read the passage and read the passage <laughs> and scratched my head and said, I have no idea what it was, but I read a lot of words. Uh, I found I have a five five language or five Bible parallel Bible. It helps a lot. <laughs> Anybody else? I find that I can remember it if I apply it to my life and use it. 
me, it helps to um, hear it. So on DVD, it really helps. Because I um, even even if you or even pastor or anybody who's reading scripture, a lot of times, I mean, I'll turn to it, but I'll look at whoever's reading it because I can get it better when I'm hearing it. <clears throat> and I'm the total opposite. I'm very visual. I mean, if you look at my... I highlight, I, I box things in, I use colors. I'm very visual, so I need to see something. Jim can sit and listen to a sermon. He can listen to... And I am just totally gone. But if you give me the transcript, I'll read it, and I'm good. So I have to be very visual about what I'm studying. It's good to know. I'll send my notes to you before. <laughs> <laughs> highlighted. Highlighted. And every, I have mine highlighted, see? So, so uh, let me answer this question uh, generally, and then I'll give you give some specifics. And then I want to try to give an example. Um, and we'll see how this all goes. So here's two things that I've used in junior high. So you have to pardon my junior high level illustrations here. All right. I'll try to simmer them down for, for this audience because you're so much more mature. Number one, daily study. How do, so this is just general stuff. How do we study the Bible daily? Daily study. It's tough. Okay. It's tough. Yeah. Maybe we could put regular study. But listen listen to the, the example that the Bereans left us. Acts 17. Now the Bereans were more noble character than those in Thessalonica. For they re- so how in the world are they more noble than the other people? They received the message with great eagerness. So just, just stop at that one for a second. How, how often do we walk in on Sunday mornings... And we are not eager to hear God's word. Like, we're just there. So they received the word with great eagerness, and they examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. That's pretty good. Okay, I'm not going to be a rule, a taskmaster, and say, oh, you got to read the Bible every day. I had a good friend of mine recently tell me when I was struggling with some things, he said... Troy, don't beat yourself up over the last couple of weeks. You've really been struggling with being in the Word. Your life's kind of up in the air. You know God's Word. You've been reading it all your life. Like, oh, that's a good point. And so I was able to just take a deep breath, rest in the fact that I do know God's Word, mm-hmm. and go. So God's not sitting there. With his whip, the second that you don't read the Bible, but it's a regular disciplined study. It's a detective-like examination. It's like my mother, when she used to take me clothes shopping for school, and I would pick out something that I really thought was cool, but then she would look at it with a fine-tooth comb, and she always had to find a thread that was missing. Or thread that was out of place. And then, of course, that was the last one in my size, so I couldn't get it. Detective-like examination. Mm. Yeah, you know. (laughs) Daily study, continual meditation. Psalm 1, 1 and 2. Blessed is the one who does not walk in in step with the wicked, or stand in the way that sinners take, or sit in the company of mockers, but... His delight is in the law of the Lord, and he meditates on his law day and night. Meditation. If I could put it this way, it's an internal discussion that is constantly going on inside your head all day long. I used to sell printer cartridges for a living when I was in seminary. I didn't really like it that much. But one of the things that I really, really did like about it is that I I drove all over heaven and earth in Metro Detroit. Every day I was out driving. And I spent a lot of time, instead of listening to the radio, I spent a lot of time just mulling over scripture. That was some really good... I, I missed those times of just driving and being alone and thinking. Because now with two children, that doesn't happen. <laughs> because by the time they hit the pillow, I'm like toast. <laughs> right? After a long day of work and kids, my brain is like in shutdown mode. So I, I get I get that. I get it's hard. 
So generally speaking, daily study in a detective-like way and continual meditation, like regurgitate the truth in your mind, okay? But let me give you some specifics. Three particular specifics to hook, so to speak, to hang your study on. Number one is observation. Number two is interpretation, and three is application. So there's observation, interpretation, and application. Observation, interpretation, and application. So observation, you open up the Bible and you read. Your goal is, what does it say? It's words, right? If you can read, you can read the Bible. What does it say? Read it. Look at its context. What is it sitting in? Ask lots of questions. A friend of mine used to say, this is the time when you bombard the text with questions. Just from every angle, think about it. Observe. Why did he say that there? Why did he say it like that? Why did he say it at all? And on and on you could go. Observation. Interpretation. What does it mean? So observation is what does it say. Interpretation, what does it mean? What did the original author mean when he wrote that to the people that he wrote it? How do the words fit together? Right? Because a sentence is made up of words. But those words have to fit together. Subjects, nouns, right? Verbs, direct objects, indirect objects, prepositions, all sorts of other stuff that I can't remember. And they all fit together, right? How does that work? Like, we can look and see, okay, there's there's words and we know what that word means, but what that word is, but how does it all work together to contribute to the meaning of that 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 text and that application. How does it or should it affect me? So observation is what does it say? Interpretation is what does it mean? And application is what does it or or I'm sorry, how does it or how should it affect me? Okay, so there's the three steps. Let me give you a couple rules. Four rules, actually. I think there's only four. There's probably more, but here's four simple rules. <coughs> rules of interpretation. And I'm, I'm being generic with that term, interpretation. Four rules. One, context is king. You can never separate a text from its context. So, number one, context is king. Number two, this is long. But hang with me. We can't know what it means for us now until we know what it meant for them back then. We can't know what it means for us now until we know what it meant for them back then. We can't know what it means for us now until we know what it meant for them back then. So number one, context is king. That's rule number one. Rule number two, we can't know what it means for us now until we know what it meant for them back then. Number three, let Scripture interpret Scripture. Let Scripture interpret Scripture. of pens just burning holes in your page Mm -hmm. and then four you can have one you can only have one meaning but you can have many applications you can only have one meaning but you can have many applications so context is king can't know what it means for us now until we know what it meant for them back then. So there's this gap, right? 
Scripture, let Scripture interpret Scripture. Number four, there's only one meaning to a given text. Yet there are many applications to life. All right. If you would, once you get done with the, the crazy writing, turn your Bibles to Philippians chapter 4. <clears throat> Philippians chapter 4. Now, I'm going to just land in a verse. Don't read anything else. You've got to stick with me in this, all right? Because if you, if you disobey me, you're not going to get the exercise, all right? So just trust me. Philippians 4, <clears throat> verse 13. Here's what it says in the NIV. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. I can do all this. I can do all things, as you might read in the New American Standard, or whatever other translation, I can do all things through Christ and through Him who gives me strength. Now, that's a good verse, isn't it? You might see that written on the guy's black uh, eye black in a football game. And so, here's what we could do, right? If we if we just if we just think about that verse and we claim that as our life verse, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. All right. There's a guy stuck under a car. I can do all things through Christ. It gives me strength. And you lift up the car. Could it happen? Maybe. But is that what this verse is promising you? Now, if you if you if you tear this thing out of its context, right? Oh, so let's go back to that observation thing. Right? We're going to read that verse. Oh, but let's set it in its context. Let's observe not just the verse, but let's observe what's around it. Go up to verse 10. I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but had no opportunity to show it. So he's talked, Paul is in prison, if you remember. This is the book of Philippians. He's in prison, and he's writing back to the Philippian believers and saying, Hey, I know you guys love me, but you had no way, at least monetarily, of showing it. And he, verse 11, he says, I'm not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, like right then and there, because he's in prison. And I know what it is to have plenty, like back be, before he was even a believer. And he was super Jew, right? I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all things, all this, through Christ who gives me strength. Whoa! Now that promise, in context, when I've observed, helps me interpret it, right? I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Hmm. That means, probably, that I shouldn't be trusting God to give me superhuman strength to lift up a car. Now, I don't want to, I guess maybe I'm a little bashful to say God couldn't ever do that. I mean, he did give, you know, guys in the Old Testament some pretty awesome strength to do some pretty cool things. But that's not the norm, Right? So I don't think it's fair to just expect, like, tear this out of its context. I think what the what the point is, the interpretation is, I can do all things, I can do all this, I can live in any situation that God puts me in, and I can please Him. Because God is giving me the strength to do that. God gives me the strength through Christ to live in any and every circumstance that I might find myself in, in such a way that I can please Him. Now, that is a radically different interpretation than doing some superhuman feat. So, we observed, we read it, we consulted the context, we looked at the words, which are pretty simple, right? Interpretation, so we came up with what we think it means. Now, how do we apply that? Now, see, that application is going to take on a whole different, a whole slew of different forms, right? For me, in my house and at my job, Okay, I can serve God. 
I have the strength to obey God in any circumstance I might find myself in throughout the day. Okay? But that's going to look totally different for a mom. Or for a single lady or a single man or for a grandma and grandpa. So you see how that that works? Observation, interpretation, application. And when you think about those rules, context is king. That helps save a lot of stuff, right? This can only have one meaning. Allow scripture to interpret scripture. Just to give you a quick example of that. If we were to read through scripture, Genesis 3.15 talks about the serpent crushing or uh, the seed crushing the head of the serpent. If you guys just read Genesis, you would have no idea and you never read anything else, you have no idea what he's talking about. But when we interpret scripture with scripture, we come in the New Testament and we and, and throughout the Old Testament we read about the seed and then we get to Galatians and we read the seed is Jesus. And Jesus came and he conquered Satan at the cross and rose from the dead. And we read in, in 1 Corinthians 15, it says, Death, where is your sting? Jesus is the conqueror. He's been raised. He's been ascended to the throne. Everything is under his feet. Look, this is sweet. Jesus is the seed who's crushing Satan. Okay, there's scripture interpreting scripture. <clears throat> Thinking biblically. Alright. So going back. Now we're done with that. So if I'd like to ask you this question kind of as a summary to all that we've discussed. Because we've discussed the why, we've discussed the how. So I'd like to just end with this kind of like a controversial objection that you might face one day that I've faced. Is it legalistic to study my Bible when I don't feel like it? Is it legalistic? Why or why not? One thing, we can't allow our emotions to dictate our actions. I can't help how I feel. We still do it because God commands Okay. Reading God's Word. You weren't perfect before you started reading God's Word. Reading God's Word takes you in that direction. If you're less perfect today than you were yesterday, what's the difference? You're reading God's Word so you can get more to, to be perfect. Okay. So, so, yeah, reading God's Word is always good. Okay. Legalistic as in a requirement? Is that what you mean by that question? I, I'm probably using the term a little loosely, but... I mean, obviously we would all say... like, No, we shouldn't. Like, reading the Bible doesn't contribute to our standing with God, right? No. Like, our status cannot change. It does not change our relationship. It might change the enjoyment of our relationship, but it doesn't change our relationship. I guess I'm, I guess what I'm trying to get at is that sense of duty, right? Because when we think of Psalm 1, it's a delight. When I, when I read Acts 17, we're coming with great eagerness. But you and I both, all, all of us know, like, we don't come to scripture like that a good majority of the time. So should we just, when we don't feel like it, just say, nah, the heck with it. I'll, I'll do it tomorrow. Maybe I should put this, maybe put the question this way. Is there a place for discipline in the life of a believer? Oh, discipline unto godliness. Certainly. What, what what proof would you have for that? Well, so again, I'm not trying to trick anyone. I promise. I mean, Second Peter, you know, 
desire the sincere milk of the word so you can grow by it. If if you're not desiring to grow as a Christian, then you're you're not going to progress in your faith. You're not going to have a um, the kind of relationship with God that you need to have and you should have. It's going to wane if you're not reading about what He has to say to us. Okay. So you, in order to get that, you you sort of have to discipline yourself to to read it and study it. And as you do, then the desire to study it more, I think, will follow. You're not going to that new Christian or even sometimes us as older Christians aren't going to have that constant desire. Oh man. I got to read this today because it's so wonderful, and, and not that it's not, but with all the stuff going on in life that we all have, uh, there's some days that you don't get there. Uh, but the more you do, then the more you want to do it. It's like you know, eating popcorn. You know? <laughs> Even though I get full, the more I eat, the more I want. You know, I mean, it, it you you develop a taste for it that that's what you want. And then the only way you're going to get it by whether you feel good or whether you don't, you know, it's not an obligation. It's something that you learn to want to do. Write down uh, this text, 1 Corinthians 9, verses 24 through 27. 1 Corinthians 9, verses 24 through 27. Read those tonight, maybe. And you, and you, and you listen to the language of Paul in running a race and how hard he's, he's, he's pursuing after that or I think it's Philippians three where he talks about I press on toward the prize of of the upward call of God. I mean, when you read Paul, you think this guy is is all over this, right? I mean, he is disciplined. So I think discipline has a significant place in the life of a believer, and I think that. In today's Christianity, we often uh, push down discipline, um, not corrective discipline. What I mean is just discipline of life. Um, we're, we're scared of that, that because that might be duty, that might be legalism. And no, we need to embrace the disciplines of 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 reading the Word, of what we'll talk about next week in prayer. Let me give you just a couple. Uh, every analogy breaks down, right? So don't hold these analogies to the pure fire here because they will fail. But here's a couple analogies just to think through with respect to discipline. If you're a runner training for a marathon, you're not going to always feel like running, right? I hate running. And I've never run a marathon. I hope to never run a marathon. <laughs> but if I were to try to train for a marathon, you better believe I would hate running every day because I hate running. But I would do so in order to compete, right? To finish the course. To persevere when the going gets tough. Or think about it this way. If you're a former alcoholic, You don't feel like abstaining from the next beer, right? Because, man, that it just smells putrid. But that person thinks that it's awesome, right? He can't wait for the next sip. Do you not, would we accuse him of legalism by saying, I'm never going into a bar again in my life? No. We would say, that is a man who is disciplined. Why? Because he knows where he is weak. And he is setting up boundaries and safeguards to protect himself, to please God, to protect God's glory. Because he doesn't want to fall into drunkenness again. That's not legalism, that's discipline. And that's good. Rules aren't bad. But sometimes rules get a bad rap. Or what about this? And we, most of us can probably relate to this. You're a, a spouse. You guard your marriage by setting boundaries, right? I mean, if you're a guy and you have to work with women, you set boundaries. I'm not going to be alone with another woman who's not my wife. Why do I do that? Why would any man do that? 
It's not because he's trying to earn his wife's love. It's because he's protecting his wife's love, his wife's love, because it's an exclusive relationship. No other woman should be in that relationship with him, right? We're not going to ever accuse that man of legalism. We ought to applaud his discipline. Let me leave you with this. Hebrews 12, 1 through 3. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. Free yourself from both sin and stuff if it doesn't contribute to you running this race well. And let us run with perseverance the race that is marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and the perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. You see, discipline is a good thing, and we must be disciplined. Laying aside not just sin, but just the stuff of life that crowds in our way, because there's something that's so much better. Running the race with Jesus in our in our eyesight. Because we want to end up in glory, enjoying our Savior forever. That requires perseverance. That requires discipline. That requires focus. So, the Word. Why? Because this Word is awesome. It has a unique author. We have a unique relationship with that author. It has a unique process. It's a patent. Like, it's got the patent. It's not patent pending. Like, it's patented. And it is guaranteed to give you the results that you want of being spiritually mature. How do we do it? Study it. Meditate on it. Observation, interpretation, application. And discipline. Don't be scared of discipline. Discipline yourself. Not to earn God's love, but because you love Him. So, do you and I hunger for the Word? Do we hunger and thirst for righteousness, as Jesus says in Matthew 5? Do we have a craving for it, as 1 Peter 2 says? Are you disciplined in your study of God's Word? I don't like asking that question myself, so I'll just go to the next one. Do you meditate on it? Do you meditate on God's Word? Do you hide it in your heart, and do you think about it? Or do you wake up in the morning, you read your Bible, pray every day, hoping that you'll grow, 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 but then it's like, okay, apple a day, we'll keep the doctor away. Boom, I'm on my routine. Meditate on this amazing, amazing book. If I could give you one, there's millions of resources, let me give you just one that I found that I really, really enjoy. It's not going to rock your world or anything in the Bible study arena, but just an easy devotional that you can buy on your iPad if you have one. It's called New Morning Mercies by Paul Tripp. New Morning Mercies by Paul Tripp. He has a devotional for every day that's deeply rooted in the gospel. Um, and it's, it's short, which I like. Easy to read. It's called New Morning Mercies by Paul Tripp. Um, I'm reading through it now. I obviously don't get to it every day, but I do read through it. And um, he really just gives you a nice food for thought every day to think about the gospel and God's grace. So let's pray and then we'll, we'll be done. Father, thank you for holding my voice up so that uh, I could help them walk through this lesson. I pray that it would have been profitable uh, for all of us, that it would be a good reminder to us because I'm certain that um, all of us probably already knew all this stuff. But I pray that we would not be scared of discipline, that we would not be scared of rules, um, that we would never think that doing these things is going to earn your love.
but that it would be a demonstration of our love to you because we want to protect this because we know how important it is to develop a relationship with you. So would you help us to get the why, to get what an amazing God you are and that you have revealed yourself to us in your word. I pray that we would dive in head first and that we would study. In your name I pray, amen.